So this morning we're going to be continuing, if you haven't picked up just yet, we're going to be continuing in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 2. So picking up where Bryce left off, we're going to start in John chapter 2 verse 13. And we're going to work our way through uh, the next couple of verses through John chapter 2 verses 13 through 22. So go ahead and get there if you've got your Bible out and open. Authority. What do you think of with the word authority? We probably all have different things going through our mind. Maybe uh, if you've had run-ins with the authority, the cops, maybe in younger days, you think that. Maybe that comes to your mind. Maybe you think of a school teacher. I was homeschooled, so maybe I think of my mom being the authority. We have tons of perceptions of authority, and they're running through our minds, but we live in a world seemingly devoid from authority. We're averse to being under anybody's authority. We seem to be in a world devoid of absolutes, where we all make up our minds of what is, because we all have what's true to us. Right? That's right in the world, but that's wrong for the believer. For the believer in the Christian worldview, we do have absolute truth. We do have one who is setting the rules and setting the standards because he is the one who created us. He's the one who spoke everything into existence. It sets every other worldview completely on its head. That we humble ourselves under the authority of God. We've seen in a short time, I think we've been in John for maybe four or five weeks maybe. We've seen that in John... Through his writing, Jesus is given the same authority as God. But he's also distinct. He's not God the Father. He's God the Son. He's equal with God because he is God. As some of the old creeds and confessions say that he is very God of very God. He is 100% God. He holds the same authority because he is God. He's God the Son. In our passage this morning, we'll see that Jesus has authority over the temple. And not only that, but he's establishing a new temple for the worship of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So this morning's main idea is that Jesus establishes a new temple in his body for the pure worship of the triune God. Jesus establishes a new temple in his body for the pure worship of the triune God. Let's read John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. 
and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This morning we're going to see this story break down, I believe, in two parts. You could probably break it down by even more parts, but I'm breaking it down into two parts, action and reaction. Action and reaction. You can see that in these two pieces of this text, something happens. Jesus goes and acts. And then there's a reaction by those who he is correcting, who he is rebuking. So let's follow this story by using those two parts as our guide. The action. Jesus cleanses the temple. I'm thankful that in the Gospel of John, he uses so many different things to tell us both geographically where they were and kind of temporal. Where in the calendar are these occurrences happening. He does both right here. He says the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and so Jesus went to Jerusalem. This would not be uh, abnormal by any means. I was reading some commentaries that said anybody within who was, who was an Israelite within 15 or 25 miles of Jerusalem during the Passover feast had to, excuse me, had to go to Jerusalem to pay their temple tax, to make atonement for their sin. So John gives us this roadmark of where they are. The Passover is at hand, and he's going up to Jerusalem. And what does he find in the temple? He finds a stockyard. He finds a stockyard. And we could get completely caught up on, well, what do the birds mean? And what do the uh, oxen and the sheep mean? Remember what the Passover was intended to do. Remember John's, the Baptist's attribution of Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember the Passover. What happened at the Passover? A lamb was slain to protect the Israelites' home from the angel of the Lord. So these animals represent the sacrifices that were going to be necessary for this week of the Passover. So it seems like at the temple they realize, hey, they're going to need these animals to atone for their sin. So it may even be pure motives of, you know, we might as well just bring these things in so that people, as they come in and pay their tax, they can have these animals ready to atone for their sin. 
whether it's out of pure motives or out of just trying to capitalize on the event of the Passover, it seems sure that Jesus has a problem with it. Jesus has a problem with it because they're selling these animals. There's no real remembrance of the Passover. What does Moses tell the Israelites when they leave in the Exodus? He tells them, bake this unleavened bread because it cooks faster and you don't have the yeast. It doesn't have to rise or do anything like that. And he says, leave quickly. And then he tells them to remember what's happened. That's why some even institute the Passover meal today. Some call it a, a Seder um, to remember what has happened, how God has taken his people through the Exodus. He delivered them from their sin. This is monumental what happened in the Exodus, in the Passover. There are some I think I've shared earlier in my time here. Uh, shortly after Andy and I moved into our new apartment there in Middletown, this couple knocked on our door, and so we answered it, and they uh, said, hey, we belong to such and such church, and, you know, we're, we're seminary students. I was like, oh, me too. Great. Like, let's, let's talk. Let's have a conversation. And he's like, well, we're, we're doing this, and then you, you kind of fill out a survey of how well we presented the information, and uh, yeah, if, if we could just have some of your time. And I was like, that'd be great. So he's like, you've got five questions to pick, and then I'll answer one of these questions. And so one of the questions was, how do you escape disaster? I think we were in the middle of Ruth, where Ruth seeks refuge in God and escapes disaster. So I was like, yeah, do that. Tell, tell me how I can escape disaster, thinking, man, he's going to talk about Christ and his atoning work and how if you are a believer in Christ, you will escape disaster on that day. And he begins to tell me about the Passover and the Passover and the Passover and the Passover and that you can escape disaster from the Passover. I was like, but, but what about Jesus? He's like, well, Jesus is carrying on with his disciples at the Last Supper. It's, they're celebrating the Passover. So they're finding their protection in the Passover. That's completely off. The Passover points to Jesus. Just as John the Baptist points to Jesus, the Passover points to Jesus. And just like the temple, just like John the Baptist, just like the Passover, the temple points to Jesus. Because we'll see that J Jesus is saying this temple will be eradicated. It will be no more. You won't need this temple. I'm making a new temple. And it's only going to take me three days where it took you 46. So he's upset with the wrongful use of not only the temple, but how does he identify it? He identifies it as his father's house. Again, making himself one with God as the Son of God. Jesus is saying, you make my Father's house a house 
of trade. What was his father's house supposed to be? Let's historically trace how God has used his people and used houses of worship in this history of the people of God. Starts after the Exodus and that he tells Moses to construct not a temple, but a tabernacle, a, a tent, a, a, an area for them to be able to be <laughs> moving because they're still sojourning in the wilderness. And it was said that the tabernacle in Exodus 40, 34, after they've constructed the tabernacle, here's what Moses writes at the end of Exodus. It says that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So they go through and they're worshiping God through the tabernacle. His glory is seen there in the tabernacle. And then David comes and he wants to build a house that will stay and will remain for the Lord. And the Lord says, you're not going to build it, but your son will build it. So Solomon begins to construct the temple, the house of God. And at the end of the construction of the temple, 1 Kings 8, verse 11, it says, For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So the temple is supposed to be a place where the glory of God resides. There should be a distinguishable difference from this temple from any other institution on the planet. Because the glory of God resides in it. It's supposed to be distinct. It's supposed to point to God. It's supposed to be reverent. It's supposed to be worshipped. That's where sacrifices are made. That's where atonement is made by the high priest who goes in on the day of atonement to atone for the people's sins. It was gruesome. That's why all of the animals were being traded because they were going to be slaughtered to atone for the people's sin. Because the people had an understanding that they were not right with God. And they were following the Levitical law that says for this sin, this sacrifice must be made. And for this sin, this sacrifice must be made. But praise God that we don't have that sacrificial system anymore because Jesus paid it all. Jesus, once and for all, having gone into the Holy of Holies and sitting now at the right hand of God, has made atonement for our sin. You want to learn more about that? Hebrews 9, the writer of Hebrews, takes all of the Old Testament law and he sees it refocused in Jesus, that he is now our high priest, that he, not by the blood of animals or goats or rams or anything like that, but by his blood atones for our sin, meaning he will not have to continue to do that. His sacrifice once and for all. So the temple was for worship. It was for the glory of God to reside and to show the world. One author says that the way we worship, the way we worship reveals the way that we think about God. Think, think about that. 
The way we worship reveals the way that we think about God. So do we think of God as just this little statue that we can put there and kind of shine on Sundays and just think, man, this is, this is great to go and uh, appease God with our worship? Or do we, in all of our heart and all of our being, desire that the God, the creator of the universe, be pleased in our lives? I'll be the first to say, I don't do that second thing as much as I should. I want to desire God more, for He is so glorious and so much more magnificent than I could ever think or imagine. So what do we think about God? What we, how we worship reveals what we think about God. Let us think big about God, that our worship might be just as big as He is. So Jesus is upset that they're not using the temple for what it was made for. They were exploiting and capitalizing on this occurrence. There was no reverence for the worship of God. There was no importance placed on the Passover itself. It was just kind of, come on in, get your animal, go change your coins out, Keep going. One pastor says it this way. When it comes to our plans of our life, maybe our church, our family, whatever it may be, this is what he says. He says, God will not resource our plan for his church. God will not resource our plan for his church, but he will not withhold any resource from heaven for his plan for his church, for his plan with your life. God's not going to make you rich and prosperous so that you can exploit that and buy a Lamborghini or a jet or fill in the blank. says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you. That When we see that God is infinitely worthy of our worship, all of the illusions of this world will be seen as just that. So it says that Jesus had a zeal for his father's house. John gives us one of these great narrator's notes, narrative notes, where he is the one writing about this story, and then at the end he kind of gives us, hey, I, I want to summarize what's going on here. So he says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is from Psalm 69. This is a Psalm of David. David is lamenting about his enemies coming on on every which way. And yet David confesses that zeal for the house of God, for the glory of God, for the worship of God has consumed him. 
And now Jesus' disciples interpret this as, this is what Jesus is doing. Zeal for his house has consumed him. Isn't that neat that New Testament disciples see the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus Christ? They begin to connect the Passover lamb as Jesus. They begin to see the Davidic king coming into fruition through Jesus. Well, this talk of Jesus making a new temple, it took a little bit longer. So, Becky, as you're praying and we're praying for your father that he would believe, we also are given this amazing thing that even though the disciples are walking with Jesus, it takes Jesus coming back from the dead for them to finally believe. So it may take a while, but there's hope that Jesus, through his spirit, will continue to work in his life to bring him to faith. So that's the action. That's Jesus going in and cleansing the temple for the pure worship that was supposed to be going on during the time of Passover especially. What's the reaction? What's the reaction of the Jews? Let's continue reading. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? One commentator notes that they don't ask Jesus what authority he has. They assume authority because there's something peculiar about Jesus. Even now, very early in his public ministry, the the Jews and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and Sadducees are starting to see there's something about this Jesus. I mean, picture this in another gospel. Jesus goes into the temple and he begins to read from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, this reading has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sets it down and goes to sit down. Jesus is doing absolutely nothing less than asserting that he is God. In the flesh, on the earth. So when theologians start talking about, well, Jesus never really asserted that he was, we're not even two chapters through John, and he's already, he's been testified by others as being God. He's now saying that he is God. He's saying he's got authority over the temple, but the Jews aren't worried about his authority. They want to know, what's your justification for doing this? If you're going to come in and and mess up our commerce and mess up all these things, you better be justified in doing so. What, what's your justification? <laughs> and Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? So going back to our fun history of the temple, you have Solomon who built the temple. Israelite history, murky. I'm excited to be able to spend some time in the Old Testament as we, it's hard to think that we're going to be done with John uh, at some point, but we will conclude John and we'll hopefully be able to dive into an Old Testament book. 
Israelite history shows that the Israelites go from king to king, from essentially God to God. They worship the God of Israel sometimes, and then they worship other gods, surrounding people's gods. And it's just this continual, like, what are you thinking, people? And Ezekiel gives us a stark understanding of what happens when God's people worship something other than him. It says that the glory of the Lord left the temple. That should be horrifying to us as we think about being a New Testament church to bring glory and worship to God, that God would ever leave this place. You may think, well, that that clearly doesn't happen. Revelation, it does happen. The Lord removes the lampstands of the churches that are not faithful and persevering in the love of Christ. That should cause us to be both, I would say, fearful and watchful of the way in which we conduct things that happen in this place. That we not get caught up about, well, what I want is for this to happen, or what I want is for this to happen, or I don't want that, and I don't want this. Let's get caught up about what does Jesus want? What does he prescribe for his church, for his people, to be the vehicle that makes God's wisdom made known to everyone around us? So the glory of the Lord leaves the temple because they're not worshiping God rightly. And then in their exile to Babylon, the Babylonians actually destroy the temple. The end chapters of Leviticus tell us about the ornaments of the temple. It tells us about the gold walls. It tells us about the gold uh, lampstands, the gold basins, all of these just ornate things. The Babylonians destroyed it. They ransacked it. So the temple that these Jews in this story are talking about is the one that was rebuilt after the exile. Persian king allows some of the Israelites to go back and begin to reconstruct this temple. So Jesus tells them, I'll destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. They didn't understand. They immediately connect to, there's no way. You could, you could get all kinds of workmen and craftsmen to come and try and build this again, but no way in three days you're going to be able to do it. They're looking very strictly at the physical limitations of what it would take to, man, to rebuild this, it's going to take way more than three days. might not take 46 years, but it's going to take more than three days. They didn't understand what Jesus was telling them. He's, he's saying, I'm ushering in something new that is going to make this temple inferior. In fact, the temple pointed forward to a better and final meeting point between God and human beings. That was the purpose of the high priest, was to go and to meet with God. But through Christ, He is God. He is our better mediator. So we no longer need another mediator. We have Christ. Jesus cleansed 
the temple. He also replaced, he replaced it. How did he replace it? Well, he replaces it in that he is our way, our mediator. He is our high priest before God. He also replaces it by his sacrificial death. We no longer have to bring. Thank you that nobody brought pigeons, bulls, goats, or any. I mean, it's probably good that your dad's not here. He would have brought some ducks or something. (laughs) But the scene is gruesome and equally as gruesome, the death on the cross that Jesus paid on our behalf. Jesus replaced the temple and fulfills its purpose. One author says, the true high priest, that is Jesus, has entered once for all. This is a quotation from Hebrews 9, 12. He's entered once for all within the innermost recess of sanctity so that no further sacrificial action is necessary or appropriate. This should make your heart well up with thanksgiving that you no longer have to make atonement for your sin. You no longer have to sacrifice animals for your sin. Not only should it make you thankful that you don't have to do that, but it should make you so thankful that Jesus was the one who paid that. So the Jews think he's talking about a physical temple. They don't understand. This even is an accusation that the Jews rendered at the end of Jesus' ministry to get him this, uh, you know, his, his fake trial that then ended with his crucifixion. Mark 14, verse 58, some went to the leaders and said, we have heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. So essentially they're saying, he said he's going to destroy our temple. That should be evidence enough that he should die. Again, we're thankful for John's points of narration. He clears it up in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Three days. Three days. Jesus dead after his crucifixion in a tomb. But three days. No one else in history can say, I was dead, but only for three days. Jesus died on our account, but the power of the Holy Spirit raised Jesus to life in three days. Building a new temple, a better temple in his body for the purpose of pure worship of the triune God. Jesus displays his authority over the temple by inaugurating, by bringing forth a new temple through his body. He does this by giving up his body on our behalf on the cross. 
It was on our account that Jesus died. If we have trusted in Christ, we are now His. We are His possession. We are His workmanship for the operation and function of good works. So if then we are His possession, we then obey Him. And how He says we worship Him is how we worship Him. I want to give a couple exhortations, a couple things to be encouraged. Hopefully you've already been encouraged by his word this morning, but I want to give two quick exhortations. The first is that Jesus is more passionate about our worship than we are. <laughs> Jesus is more passionate about our worship than we are. That can serve both as an encouragement and as somber reflection. We're never going to care about our worship more than Jesus Christ cares about our worship. He has paid it all on the cross. His blood spilt. We'll see this represented in the Lord's table here in just a moment. His blood spilt, his body broken on our behalf. And he is more passionate about our worship than we are. Secondly, Jesus being our high priest and entering into the Holy of Holies, atoning for our sin, gives us boldness to approach the throne of God. And this boldness does not lead us to continue sinning. It causes us to live holy lives. It causes us to live holy lives because and before the one who purchased us by his blood. Many times in the New Testament, we have reminders of being those who walk in the light and those who carry out obedience of Scripture. And it's always grounded in because you were purchased by His blood. It's because of something Christ has done on our account. First John, the same writer here, says we love God because He first loved us. And gave himself up for us. So those are two encouragements. I want to give two applications as well. I promise I'm going to be done. But I was gone last week, so I had to, had to, had to make up for something. Our corporate application for, for everyone together as this church. Be reminded that Jesus will not accept perverted worship. He desires true worship from true worshipers who love him. You might ask, well, that seems, that seems pretty personal. That doesn't seem super corporate. It's both personal and it's corporate. But that's what the body of Christ is. All of these one another's of living life with one another, casting burdens on one another, so that we, as a collective body, are working together to Christ-likeness. So, when we see a brother or sister sinning in grievous ways and then coming into church, worshiping God, 
we must be reminded God will not accept perverted worship on Sundays if the rest of your life is not living in accordance to his word. Therefore, we should remind one another. We should stir one another on to live this life in perseverance according to God's word, seeing Christ as our aim and goal of this life and stirring one another to pursue him intimately. Now our individual application. So we have this progression of the tabernacle and the temple, that it's the residence of the glory of God. Jesus made a new temple by his body. Where does the glory of God reside? Well, as believers, we're told that the glory of God resides in us. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we now have God in us. That's why Jesus says, it's better that I go, God, with you. I go so that the Spirit can live in you. So application, our bodies are the dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. This is Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Why do we glorify God in our bodies? As our spiritual act of worship. We do this by worshiping God. Secondly and finally, worship starts with repentance. Repentance, turning from our sinful ways and turning to Christ. So let us confess our sins to our great high priest Jesus whose righteous death atoned for all of our sin, past, present, and future. I love the hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus 